Mario. Ilario Mariotto and I are the same age, but when I was leaving for college, he was boarding a ship for Australia, where he would spend four hot, exhausting years chopping sugarcane in the fields. Ilario can still speak halting English, despite twenty-five years of disuse. Note to diary, where has my college French gone? Each morning, I climb out of bed and assemble my limited Italian verbs and nouns into imaginary dialogues with Silvana, trying to prepare myself for her arrival. At eight o'clock, she walks over from Café Palladio, the bar and sandwich shop that she and her husband Giacomo own and operate across the street from the villa. Her purpose is to open our balcone. Balcone is the Venetian, not Italian, word for shutters. The villa has forty-four immense pairs of them, most of them more than ten feet tall. In accordance with local custom and for security as well, all of them must be closed and latched each night and opened each morning. Those on the ground floor are secured with a heavy steel bar lifted and fitted into slots on each side of the window opening. For Carl or me, it would be a thirty-minute task every morning and night. Silvana or Giacomo can do it in twenty. Their older son Leonardo can do it in fifteen minutes, but the process is a cacophony of shutters banging, windows slamming, glass rattling, and steel clanging to wake the dead from their rest in the cemetery of the parish church a block away. Carl and I refer to it all as the balcone ceremony. We quickly come to accept it as part of the rhythm of villa life. Even quicker, however. Is Carl's decision taken the previous October when we first arrived together as the new owners of Villa Cornaro, that the whole process should be delegated to Giacomo and Silvana in their moonlighting role as custodians of the property? On my own now, in my first spring at the villa, I soon discover the true benefit of the arrangement. Silvana's morning visits are my gateway to the world of Piombino Dese. She brings me news of the village. Listens attentively to my carefully prepared yet nonetheless stumbling forays into Italian conversation, and generally presents me a role model for a donna in Venetian life. Silvana never loses patience or laughs at my malapropisms. She speaks with slow precision, repeating phrases as often as necessary, rearranging them as bits of a puzzle until the meaning is apparent even to an American novice. My six months of lessons back in Atlanta with Lola Butler, an effervescent military bride from Padua, have drilled me in the basics of Italian grammar. But my brain is not prepared to process a non-stop stream of animated Italian, especially when the conversation turns to septic tanks, sewers, spigots, drains, and other topics that never arose in my dialogues with Lola, but grow to fill my life in Piombino Dese. A pizza party. Will be a baptism of fire. Eight cars have arrived ahead of us when we pull into the parking lot at Pizzeria Sombrero that evening, and several others follow. I'm in the dark about the guest list for this outing, but I notice that all those climbing out of the automobiles are women. Each is immaculately dressed in tall heels and a smart suit. Many have bright scarves tossed elegantly across their shoulders. With that infuriating insouciance, I envy so. 
we enter a brightly lighted room and take seats at a single long table stretching from one end to the other. About forty women are present, at least thirty-five of them complete strangers to me, and all are in high spirits and chattering rapidly. Silvana lifts her voice to tell me, above the din, that the women in town want to welcome me to Piombino Dese with a pizza party. They are afraid I may be lonely at the villa by myself. I am afloat in a sea of introductions and mellifluous Italian names, Lucia, Chiara, Emanuela, Pierina, Fiorella, Flora, Elena, Nadia, Enza, Maria Rosa, Luigina, Francesca. Beer is flowing. Pizzas with micro-thin crusts follow in infinite variety. Seafood pizzas arrive topped with mussels and gamberetti, the whole mussels, shells and all. Pizza Maria with creamy white bufala mozzarella and a light sweet tomato sauce. Pizza with pungent arugula. Pizza striped with melanzane, eggplant, and zucchini. Pizza decked with pepperoni. Not the little salami slices. These are green and red and yellow peppers from the garden. I lose count of the pizzas, just as I have already lost track of the names. Perhaps I lose track of the beer as well. But most improbably, I lose my self-consciousness about speaking Italian. My grammar is no better. My vocabulary is no larger. But among friends, what do such things matter? As I wake the next morning, alone in the huge villa, in the pitch black because of the tightly closed balcone, my head slightly disoriented from too much beer, I smile with the realization that I have a new home among the women of Piombino Dese. Chapter 2 A Home in New Hampshire As I settle into the pace of Piombino Dese, I sometimes wonder, sitting on the south portico in the evening with a glass of Prosecco, how I ever managed with the simplicity of only one life, one circle of friends, one language and I ponder how easily and quickly chance can divert the whole stream of one's life. Whatever brought you to buy a Palladian villa in Italy? It is a question Carl and I never escape. Our Atlanta friends ask, tourists and tour guides ask, occasional magazine writers and television interviewers ask, and from time to time, in these quiet moments, we ask ourselves, Carl has developed a simple response. It was a full moon. I always answer with a longer version, but sometimes I think that I am only telling how it happened and that I am still searching for the why myself. In the spring of 1987, I decided that a well-ordered Atlanta family such as ours should have a second home in upstate New Hampshire or possibly Vermont. Although my mother was from Oklahoma, and my father from Edinburgh, Scotland. I grew up in Littleton, in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, where my father was a doctor. Since Carl seemed to be weaning himself from working all seven days of the week, I felt the time was ripe for a country retreat, a place where we might, in Thoreau's phrase, live deliberately. Two of our children were in college, and the youngest was in high school. 
I was cheerfully making full-time work of my part-time post as music director of a small church near our home in Atlanta, the result of returning to school for a master's degree in sacred music. Ashley, Carl, and Jim applauded their mother's return to academia and found her exam-time anxiety to be a special treat. Still, my plate was not filled. I determined that a vacation house would be a lodestone to draw the family together regularly and to retain familial, or at least friendly, ties through coming decades. Like our black Labrador Cleo with a new rawhide bone, I seized the idea and began gnawing away at it. Visions sprouted in my head, a two-story clabbered cottage on Sugar Hill, or a stone house along the banks of the Gale River, its entranceway a spiderweb of climbing yellow roses. The dreams were vivid in color, scent, and sound, and particular to my native White Mountains. A ream of National Geodetic Survey maps of northern New Hampshire, each tightly rolled and secured with a rubber band, stood like a bouquet in a corner of our Atlanta bedroom. I'd accumulated the maps through the past ten years and, on visits to my parents, had driven over most of the roads depicted with little squiggly lines. I was often accompanied by my aging, garrulous Scottish father, whose legendary love of the mountains and streams of the region translated into exhilarating storytelling with all who chose to listen and some who didn't. Perhaps we'd find just the home I'd pictured along Skookumchuck Brook running down the north slope of Cannon Mountain, or maybe a perfect bungalow on the narrow ribbon of back road twisting from Littleton to Franconia, where the presidential range rests like a purple velvet blanket tossed across the horizon. Or we might spot a cottage on...